0: these uh, warm bodies, breathing warm air, it could get warm in here before the night's out. I want to uh, switch a little bit from the schedule that's in your notebooks. We took twice as much time this morning on the one subject about objectives and values and uh, we just never got around to dealing with outline number six. So I'm going to skip over that tonight, and I'm going to jump right ahead to seven, which I had planned, because I wanted to have session number seven, how will I respond to being transformed. I wanted to have that tonight when the children are here. I'm just hoping that uh, I will be able to keep their attention better with this subject than (laughs) I... Well, with the other one, the other one it gets to be a bit more abstract and obtuse. You know what it means to be abstract and obtuse, right? No? Do you want Do you want to learn what that means? You do. I'm
1: becoming obtuse.
0: You're becoming obtuse. Is that because you're eating too much? Right. Oh.
1: <laughs>
0: he doesn't know what obtuse means. <laughs> I should also, while we're engaging in frivolity, levity, and things of that sort, tell you that Bob and Sue beat us, but we gave them a good match. And we had a lot of fun. And uh, we are older than they are. (laughs) Once again, I want to uh, have you open your Bibles. If you would turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We tried to make the point this morning that we have to concentrate our greatest efforts and our greatest energies. On learning those things that God wants us to learn God has goals and objectives for us his children and he says I want you to learn to obey me I want you as children to obey and honor your fathers and mothers I want you to learn to love me I want you to learn to witness for me I want you to learn to trust me to talk to me in prayer, all those kinds of things that God demands of his children. And tonight we have to ask the question, do we really enjoy learning? Is learning something that we want to do or is it something that is forced on us and something that we do oftentimes against our will? Those are the kinds of questions we're going to confront tonight and in preparation for that I thought it might be well if we took a look at Romans 7 where Paul talks about the struggles with sin and I want to begin at verse 7 and I want to read through verse 25 Romans chapter 7 beginning at verse 7 what shall we say then is the law sin? certainly not Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do... I do not do, but what I hate I do, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there's an awful lot in that passage there as you find in all of Paul's writings to the church at Rome. I'm not going to try to begin to explain all of that but I want you to keep that in the background of your mind as we talk about learning. I have said a number of things about the whole schooling process about the fact that we have to have a foundation in scripture and when we go to scripture as our primary as our ultimate authority we're going to find there a number of things that tell us about the nature of the student what a child what the human being is like first of all in his created condition then in his fallen condition and hopefully later on in his redeemed regenerate condition I have also said that we must move from the existing conditions, from those characteristics of the person, from what is to what ought to be. Everyone has some kind of ideal towards which we want our children, our young people to strive. And as Christians, we found this morning that we have a great deal of agreement on the primary objectives. Those things that are most important We all pretty much share and are all committed to. And that was very encouraging. That was delightful to see all of you just like in unison saying this is the number one. When it came to some of the twos and threes, we were running all over the map. But that's okay. We can live with those kinds of things as long as we have our priorities straight. Now, I want to throw a couple of things on the overhead to help you visualize what I'm talking about so that we can now move into that next subject of what is the nature of learning? What does it mean that we learn something? So, I trust you can all see that Uh, What I'm trying to do here is to visualize what we're talking about. On the left side, I have three different terms which we can use as synonyms. They all basically mean the same thing, but they'll help us to understand. When we talk about the formal educational pattern, whether that is being done at home or whether that's being done in school, we are moving always from the present where we are right now to what we want to happen in the future we start the year in September let's say and we say okay in September here are the conditions that prevail here are the characteristics of the children that are under our care but at the end of this year next May or next June we want a number of things to have happened to them we talk that same way when we Think in terms of going to college. A typical college freshman comes to college and they're rather immature. They're uh, sort of frivolous. They're not terribly stable. Uh, They don't uh, often know where they're going. They love uh, to chase the other opposite sex and they love to skip class. But we hope that by the time they graduate, by the time they finish the four years of college, that they are different kids if they still are immature and wild and frivolous and game-playing people, we didn't accomplish much. What we're saying here is that we want to move from what is to what ought to be. And this now implies that we are trying to effect... Well, I put one to sleep already. <laughs> This implies, in effect, that we are trying to bring about some kind of change in the people assigned to us. The subjects there, and I'll get into this more tomorrow morning, those formal subjects, whether that's Bible or arithmetic or history or reading or music or biology or whatever it might be, those are simply tools to help us move along that road. To help us bring about the kinds of changes that we want to bring about. Let me give you another illustration similar concept. When we're dealing in the ecclesiastical realm when we're thinking in terms of church We talk always about the means of grace. And so often we focus our attention there on the grace. And say, ah, yes, of course, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the baptism, the Lord's Supper, those are demonstrations of grace. But the language there is very specific and it's very precise. These are the means, the means of grace. These are the means that we use, the tools that we use to bring about sanctification. Some of you have rightly caught on already that true education can be equated with sanctification. We are moving in that Christian life more and more to become like the master. And that necessitates, again, a change in us. So I can take the same basic concept and apply it to the formal school, but it works just as well when we're talking about the church. And we have primary means of grace. Number one, very clearly pointed out in Romans chapter 10, is the preaching of the word of God. But also you have the sacraments as means of grace. And then we can talk in terms of secondary means, such as catechism classes, Sunday school classes, or Bible study groups or societies or whatever else you might want to call it, they also become means of grace to help us along that road of sanctification. And I'm just going to race through some of this to get to the points where I want to focus this evening. One of the things that you will pick up from the cover of the education book is that I argue and here again on this that we have shared goals. The church, the home, and the school don't have all separate goals that we're working towards, but the primary goals are the same for all three institutions. Whether we are talking about The objectives of becoming obedient, discerning, wise, mature, knowledgeable, praying, loving, witnessing, sharing Christians. The church and the home and the school ought all to be concerned for those. And they ought all to be working toward it. A Christian school ought not to say, oh, that's the church's job. We must complement each other and reinforce each other a good Christian school reinforces the home. It's an extension of the home. And it's helping the parents do what they don't have the time or the resources to do. So we are not working against each other, but we are trying to bring about those kinds of changes. And humanly speaking, we have far greater probability of success if all three are working together in cooperation. If they're working against each other, if the home is working against the school, the chance of being successful diminishes greatly. So, what we're saying here is that these require a change in us, and it takes a period of time. This doesn't happen Automatically. It isn't an instantaneous kind of thing, but it's something that transpires over a period of time. Now, if you take a look at the sheet in your notebooks, I put that there in a fairly crass kind of language. Because I, have, I wanted to get your attention with that. I wanted to sort of shock you into thinking seriously about this. If I take this idea that I'm working on, that I'm developing, and say that really when we try to teach somebody, we are trying to effect some kind of change in people. As soon as I make that personal And if I say, I want to teach you something, there's an implication there that I'm not satisfied with your existing condition. And there's an implication that I have something better that I want for you, and the natural reaction is to say, oh no you don't. You may come to me and say, I want you to learn something, whatever that might be. And as soon as you let on that you want to change me, I'm going to put up my guard. I'm going to get all my resistance marshaled, and I'm going to say, oh no you don't, just try it once. Because I'm really pretty content with the way I am. (coughs) Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to need some... Wilm, will you find me some... Liquid. That is a helper, meat for me. She helps me out in all kinds of ways. This this language of defining learning as change is threatening, and yet I have found over the years that when I study and read books dealing with learning theory, almost every theorist uses the word change in his definition. If you want to find somebody who does it most forcefully, most graphically and powerfully, it's J. Adams. If you've read J. Adams stuff, Jay Adams talks about class as clash. If you're going to go to school and try to be a teacher, you better anticipate conflict with your students. And he sometimes precipitates conflict. He can be very, very (laughs) graphic and very powerful. Read Jay Adams sometimes, and you say, "Wow, he scares me off," but he's on target. Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia has just put out a series of tapes dealing with effecting change in people. And they are saying essentially the very same thing I'm saying. That you must work at changing people. Especially if there are problems. You must try to effect desirable changes in people's lives. Now, that is sometimes put into a category of, well, you know, there are problems. We have to have counseling sessions and counselors can deal with change because obviously there are problems that must be resolved. I'm taking this notion and applying it across the board. And I'm saying that that is true of all education. Now, you don't have to buy this. You may be skeptical of this and you may test it out yourself. But ask yourself once if that is probably true. If every kind of learning necessitates some kind of change in the person. On this particular transparency, notice what I'm doing. I'm putting some things on the left-hand side, some characteristics that we might use to describe children that come to our school. And I'm saying... That when they come we could classify them as unskilled we could classify them as ignorant or we could say they have wrong attitudes for example they he hates music yeah you're gonna yeah I already saw some furrowed brows they hate good music <laughs> does, that, does that help oh A lot of children love music of certain kinds, but you say, all right, you have that kind of music. That's all right for now, but I want you to learn this kind of music. I think, for example, of my ninth grade in high school. I think it was ninth grade. It might have been tenth. We had to take a course in music appreciation. That's what it was called. The teacher was Miss Henrietta Tin Some of you may know her. If you ever went to Calvin College, she taught English there for a long time, just retired. Miss Tin was assigned to teach us to learn to like classical and sacred music. We all, had, back in the 50s, we had a different brand of music that we marched to. You know what the 50s music was like. And her job was to wash that out of our system and get us to the point where we would learn to love Bach and Beethoven and Brahms. And she did it. By the end of that year, I was done with the 50s music. And I love Beethoven. And I love Brahms. And I love Mozart. I still do she effected a tremendous transformation in our attitudes towards music. If you have teenagers, they probably have a taste for music, which is probably not yours as parents. And you say, turn that down. I can't stand that junk. Close the door. Things of that sort. And you are saying in effect, somehow I want you to learn to reject that and I want you to learn to love the hymns of the church and I want you to learn to love the great music of the ages. Are they going to say, yes dad, yes mom, teach me, quick, here I am?
1: No way.
0: No way. They'll fight you tooth and claw. (laughs) And finally, they may reluctantly confess, oh it's not so bad after all. I'll so, they hate your kind of music, the kind you think is good. And Now you want to get them to appreciate music. <laughs> By nature, we hate authority. We grow up hating authority. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. I'll make my decision. And you have to get them to the point where they respect authority. They really hate to study but you have to bring them to the point where they love to study they are selfish they have to become helpful they abuse property they have to learn to respect property they imitate the world around them and they have to seek first the kingdom of God and all that that implies so what I'm saying is if you look at it that way these are the kinds of things we have to effect in our children what do you do if you have members?
1: Before,
0: like members in the church how long have they been members
1: 2-3
0: years. years be patient
1: <laughs>
0: but don't give up keep working on it. I think there's I think sanctification ought to uh, occur in that area I'll, because whatever we do They're we to change us. oh yes Yes? Our kids like to try that with us too, to change us to their way of thinking. Ah, If you just listen to my music for a while, you might... No, no. But it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Hang on a second. I'm looking for... uh, What I'm suggesting here is that learning is not something we automatically want to do. Learning is something that has to be forced on us initially. Yesterday we were in the pool and one of you fathers, I forget who it was, was walking around with a little girl hanging tightly on your neck and sort of hugging, hanging on. I asked, does she know how to swim yet? No. Uh, That was a loaded question because I could tell from the fear in her face that here was somebody who was afraid of the water and gradually has to learn to overcome that fear Watch a child that is just initially being taught how to swim. Don't 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 put me in the deep water, and they panic. Uh, There's quite often crying. There are tears, and finally, slowly, they begin to learn how to swim, and they learn how to breathe, and learn how to do the strokes. And pretty soon, you can't keep them out in the pool. They love it. Now you ask him, did you like learning how to swim? Let's ask that. have you learned how to swim? You all three have learned. Did you like learning how to swim? You can't remember. That's a good honest answer. (laughs) Did you like, did you like to learn how to swim? Yeah. I'll... They aren't terribly good yet at retroactive ana- retroactive analysis. <laughs> um, adults are better at that. Think about teaching your kids to ride a bicycle. You put them on there and they get white knuckles. Mm-hmm. And you got training wheels on there and you walk alongside so that they don't dip it. Don't don't go away, Ma, don't go away, Dad. And finally They become comfortable and they learn a little bit more. They learn how to balance and then they learn how to pedal and then they learn how to steer and pretty soon take the training wheels off. Look Ma, no hands. (laughs) Look Ma, no teeth. (laughs) Uh, And after that, no, they just, they're on that bicycle. They love the bicycle. I remember teaching my kids how to drive. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that a painful experience? (laughs) I taught my good wife how to drive a Volkswagen bug on the expressways here. She knew how to drive a Volkswagen bug in Sioux Center, Iowa. But we got here to Bellflower, California and you got to learn how to drive that stick shift bug on the expressways. Nah, I'll just stay in the surface streets. (laughs) Remember those days, Wick? Teaching each of our children to, ro- or to drive a car was, again, initially a very painful kind of experience. And my oldest son went about two and a half miles an hour through every intersection. I said, hurry up, because you know, somebody's going to come and broadside us. Well, pretty soon uh, they learned, and pretty soon, Dad, I want the car six days a week. Now I couldn't keep him out of it. What I'm saying is there's a process in learning that is at first frustrating and painful. Learning, bringing us to that point of change, is very difficult. We talked earlier this morning about how long it takes to learn to obey your father and mother. Now reflect on how painful that was. I say with regret that I fought against my dad. My dad was a good man. But I resisted and I fought against him and fought against him until finally the Lord persuaded me that dad was right and that I had been wrong all those years. Once I learned that and once I went to my dad and repented and said, I'm sorry, dad. Then the joys of obedience became evident. Then I could enjoy obeying my father and honoring my father. But getting to that point was very tough and very painful. Now you may say, that might be true for the things you've described. But that's not true for learning to read. Learning to read is sheer enjoyment from beginning to end. No, (laughs) no, it isn't. Uh, Learning to spell is, is sheer enjoyment. It's all fun. No? You won't find this theory being espoused by other people. I don't know of anybody else who has developed and articulated this particular theory of learning. But I believe that it is completely compatible with scriptural teaching. I believe that's what Paul is talking about when he's writing here about learning to do what's right and struggling with that. Not doing what he should, but always doing what he shouldn't. I make mention on the outline there about St. Augustine, the great saint of the early Catholic Church around 400 A.D., the enemy of Pelagius, the one who was arguing against the teachings of Pelagian. Augustine, in his confessions, talks about when he was in school and how (laughs) there were parts of school that he hated. He deliberately tried to skip And he deliberately refused to do some of his assignments. In those days, of course, you had to learn all of the Latin language with all of the declensions, with all the vocabularies. You also had to learn all of the Greek language. And Augustine said, I hated those parts. I hated to learn Greek and Latin. What? I couldn't wait to get to some of those racy stories that were in Greek literature. Because, ah, I can read about... Men chasing women, and I can read about wars, and I can read about all these sinful things. He says that amused me. That made me, you know, keep going forward. But the difficult stuff, the learning the grammar, learning the declensions, the vocabulary, that was tough. That was painful. What I'm saying here is that all learning, involves of necessity at the outset, pain, anxiety, frustration. Once you have learned, once you have gotten to that point where you say, now I have learned to read, now you begin to experience the joy, now you begin to experience the exhilaration and the reward. There are a lot of learning theories that are based solely on the one side. They say, oh, learning is nothing but joy and reward and gratitude and fun, uh, and let's make certain that all learning is that way. I say, I'm sorry, but it isn't that way. It isn't that way at all. You, if you learn what is true, you will experience joy and you will experience reward. But you can also learn what is wrong. You can learn to do drugs. That's a very painful process. And you know what you get when you learn to do drugs? More pain. More anxiety. More frustration. Learning falsehood, learning wrong things, never brings joy, never brings reward. It brings only more pain, more frustration, more anxiety. So when I talk about learning here, producing joy, I'm talking about learning that is true learning. The kind of things God wants us to learn. The kinds of things that he says, these you ought to know and these you ought to learn. Now, let's stay here for a minute. If this is true... And if you don't think it's true, we'll talk about that. But if there's some truth to this theory, that learning first of all necessitates pain, frustration, anxiety, what kinds of qualities must you have in a teacher?
1: Patience.
0: You must have patience. If you're gonna be a teacher, You better not be impatient. You better have the patience of Job and just say, okay, I know this is a tough process and I know that these kids aren't going to learn to read in six weeks' time or six months' time. Learning to read takes from kindergarten sometimes until they're in college. I've had a lot of students in college who couldn't read, who didn't know how to read yet. And it was t- terribly demanding of me that I be patient with them. And I had to teach students at the, t- at the second year of college to read. Most of them had not learned to read critically. The majority of them hadn't learned to read critically. And they got to college and they chafed at it. And they said, why in the world do you insist on that? I think that is a primary value I think that's one of the things God wants us to do to read critically not to be a sponge and just soak everything up but to critique it in the light of God's word okay you have to be patient if this is true but there's another quality another virtue that I think teachers need if this is true anybody else want to suggest what it might be uh, diligence, diligence I hear. What was another one?
1: Determination.
0: De- determination. Ah, yes. Good. Yes, another idea back there. Standards. You must have standards as to what is right, what is good, what ought to be. Yes, standards for them to measure up to, certainly. The
1: ability to motivate
0: them. The ability to motivate them. To get them through that frustration. The thing that happens when you hit that frustration level is to go out and play ball. To back away from it and say, I can't learn it, I'm going to resort to something else. You have to be able to motivate them and push them through that frustration level. And you have to have the determination to not let them push you But you have to push them gently, firmly and kids will push against you as hard as they can and you stand there like a pillar and say I'm not going to let you push me but I'm going to push you. And I'm going to push you slowly patiently gradually and say alright you're going to get to that point by the grace of God and I'm going to just keep pushing and keep pushing. Are they going to love you for it? Well, yes, no. Eventually, right? Eventually, they will say, thanks, Dad, for not giving up, or thanks, Mrs. and for not giving up on me. Initially, their reaction is, bug off, Dad, or bug off, teacher. I'm very content just the way I am. I can function just fine without knowing poetry. And say, well, sorry, but you're going to learn it. And then later on, let me just tell you another story about Mr. and Harmsel. Almost all the way through the year, we sat as far away from her as we possibly could. And you always went to the back of the room, and, you, and then eventually, if you didn't get there quick enough, you had to sit toward the front. But nobody liked Miss Spitball. She would get so animated. The saliva would start flowing and she had a crack <laughs> between her teeth. But she loved music. And she was bound and determined she was going to make us learn to love music. She would get so animated and these little spitballs would come. And, and we mocked her and we teased her. But she hung, she was an old, experienced, single, unclaimed jewel. And... He stuck in there and said, I am going to teach you. I don't care how much you resist and how much you fight. And by the end of the year, most of us begrudgingly said, yeah, okay, Beethoven is better than Victor Malone. (laughs) That was slower. But brought us to that point. Teachers have to have backbone. Teachers have to have spine. And when the kids say no, you say, with a smile, yes, we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep plugging, pushing away. And by the grace of God, eventually you'll come back and say, thank you very much. And that's worth a ton of paychecks. My first year of teaching... I had a senior boy a couple of senior boys in high school who were just impossible they were going to do everything possible to avoid and resist the learning that we were trying to teach them I was teaching trying to teach them English literature and that was the last thing in the world they wanted and I remember a couple of them standing there in the hallway just with their fist in my face fuming because I gave them F's, and the first F I gave him on a major test the next morning I woke up Wilma woke me up she had to take the car and go off to work at about 630 to the hospital she was doing nursing there and uh, she came back in the house she says honey the car is covered with eggs I went out sleepily and yes there were eggs in the garage all over the car Lift up the hood and all the wires are pulled out. And I said, We've only been in town six
1: weeks.
0: (laughs) I gave back a batch of English tests yesterday and I gave out two F's. wonder if there's a connection. (laughs) So, what I did was simply went back in the house got over my anger a little bit, and I got on the telephone and I dialed first one number of this one young fellow and I waited until somebody picked it up and I said, I will give you, no, I I said, "Uh, is Reggie there? And uh, didn't identify myself. The father pretty soon gets his son out of bed and gets on the phone and I said, I'll give you exactly one half hour to get over here and clean it up. Now hung no. up
1: and I dialed the other number
0: and I said is Leon there and yes what do you want him for I said is Leon there I want to talk to him Leon gets on the phone I said I'll give you exactly one half hour to get over here and clean it up within a half hour there were two senior boys standing on the front porch <laughs> I said what are you doing here Well, you called. Oh, did I call you? (laughs) They eventually that day cleaned up the car, paid for all the expense of getting it. Washed and waxed and the wires all put in good running shape. And they also had to pay for my wife's lost wages for the day.
1: Amen.
0: And they, uh, they gave me as much headache as they could possibly give me throughout the rest of that year. Uh, they were very, very difficult. The one said, I am going to go off to the Army. I said, good. As soon as you graduate, I think I'd be a good place for you. <laughs> he went off to join the U.S. Army in June, and one day in October, I was busy teaching my English class, and here is a rap on the door. And I go and open up the door, and here stands Leon in his army uniform. and He says, "I want to talk to you." I said, what about? He says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I gave you so much trouble. And I want to thank you for helping me. I says, thank you, Lord. That's what teaching is all about. To be able to change lives, to be able to affect lives, when they fight against you, when they battle you, when they resist you, and then to be able to stand firm and say, you know, I'm not going to let you go. Let me show you one more transparency. We're not in oops. We're not in this business alone. Don't ever think you are. You and I are simply tools. We're simply agents working for God. We're simply trying to do his will, be his instruments to effect the kinds of changes in people's lives that they need the one who really teaches us the great teacher is god himself he tells us that we have to try to bring about transformation and he says it's really the holy spirit that does it so on this particular chart the t on the left hand side represents the teacher and the l represents the learner. But notice the arrow goes both ways. I've learned an awful lot from my students. And if you don't <laughs> if you don't learn from your students, you're closed minded, you need to become a learner again. But I worked we all work at that, trying to effect the kinds of changes that God demands for us. And God the Holy Spirit says, I will turn that heart of stone into a willing, obedient heart. And Satan says, I'll do everything I can to prevent it. Because while God is working, so is Satan. Satan doesn't go on vacation. Satan is always there trying to tempt us not to learn, or to learn the wrong thing. He is saying, disobey dad. Dad doesn't know what he's talking about. Dad's old-fashioned. He was raised in the 60s. He doesn't understand me. And God is saying, listen to your father. Obey your father. Honor your father, your mother. And it's really the grace of God that's at work. And when God decides that you are going to learn something. That power of his Holy Spirit is irresistible. He will teach us what he wants us, when he wants us. The fun is being used by him. Being used as one of his agents to have a hand, to have a part in that process of sanctification of trying to bring people along that road from where they are to where they ought to be. Good teachers are patient. Good teachers are persistent. Good teachers are determined to do what's right and to good. Even when there is resistance, even when there's rebellion, you stand and you keep pushing forward. Learning isn't all easy the way I see it. All learning involves pain, frustration, anxiety. But all learning, if it's true learning, if it's in harmony with God's will, will bring joy and satisfaction and reward and pleasure. By the grace of God, we sometimes forget, we oftentimes forget about that pain about that frustration on the loading end. I'm sure you've experienced it if you've learned how to do computers. I have had so much frustration as I've learned now I'm working on Word 7.0. That dumb machine doesn't do what I want it to do. And I get frustrated and then I say, all right, remember, you know, once you learn it, there will be joy. And then you'll be able to do things you couldn't do before. So keep your vision on that goal. Always keep thinking ahead. You'll get through this frustration. You'll get through this pain by the grace of God. And then you'll be able to enjoy it. So, enough said. We've got time for some questions. About six minutes for questions. Any questions? Okay, thank you very much. Oh, (laughs) yes, Larry. Larry is commenting about the fact that being too popular may be a bad sign. Watch out. There may be something wrong. We're going to come, hopefully, tomorrow to the question, what makes a good teacher? And we'll deal with that in some length tomorrow. So we'll come back to that particular point. If you have questions at all about this learning theory, what I've been talking about tonight, so the nature of learning... Try to focus your attention there so that we can uh, address it. Yes, sir. How did the teacher her finally
1: make me like music? Oh, the question
0: is, how did that teacher finally make me like music? For one thing, she knew her stuff. She convinced us that she really understood and she could explain things so that we could understand it. But even then, she had to be very persistent and she had to just keep demanding and keep pushing forward. She, I think, knew what I'm talking about, that eventually we would get over that hostility and eventually we would learn to like it because she was convinced in her own mind that the music she had was far better than the music we had. And as long as she knew that and was confident of that, then she could stand all of the abuse we gave her, all the naughty comments and so we made. But she was very persistent. And only afterwards did we learn to like her. It took a while. So but it's a good question. Thanks. Any, yes, uh, David. resistance is necessary and good. Very appropriate point. Uh, In fact, when I was first developing this theory back in the 60s, I wrote an article for, I believe, the Young Calvinist magazine of the Christian Reformed Church uh, entitled, Change, Change, Don't Change. There are times when you must resist and when you have to say, wait a minute, you know, uh, I want to examine very carefully what it is you are trying to do. And I need to be convinced that what you're trying to do is right and good. Now you have to prove it to me. Yes. Resistance takes on all kinds of forms. We haven't talked about that. But resistance can take on a variety of forms. One of the ways is to simply argue I know I've had a lot of students like that, that they will argue with you and against you and say, I don't, I challenge you. Right? Jay Jay was like that. He would argue. Yeah, you, mean No way. But I, I like that kind of thing. And I've always liked Jay because that brings life to a classroom. What I can't stand is when they all sit there with their arms folded and say, you try to change me. And I'll just sit there and smile. I won't utter a word of rebuke. I won't argue with you. I will just sit there and ignore you. You try to change me once. That is very effective. Lynn. Doesn't it
1: also matter from from what foundation example, I went to secular secondary school, and I disliked immensely history. As a Christian, when I was taught history, going through history of the church, and then looking at history going around the church, it was so much easier and so much more fulfilling to learn to see what God was doing in the world and in his church at the same time.
0: A good point. What you were probably... Faced with was a perspective of history that ignored God and that you ought to resist. I was a student of history. My master's was in history. I had a prof in American religious history that I very consciously, deliberately had to resist because he was a dyed in the wool Unitarian. And I knew that his Unitarian presuppositions would affect the way he saw history. So every day I came to class resisting, on guard, and I was listening for every little mistake he made. And you know what? The rascal still had me snowballed for a while, (laughs) for years, and gave me a totally wrong conception of American religious history. I, I was not able to effectively resist that professor. So, but you have to resist sometimes, and you have to be on guard. Oh yes, good, good question, good comments. Yes, one or two more, and then our time is going to be up. Yes, uh, Marilyn. You're quite right when you say that teenagers can really perfect the art of resistance. And they can resist in such a way that it drives you up a wall. Uh, we had three children who went through the teenage years. And each, in their own way, you know, brought challenges. Uh, our youngest one brought the greatest challenge our daughter. And uh, it was very, very difficult. You have to stand firm. You have to be consistent. You You have to sometimes lay down a very significant threat. And you say, if you do that once more, this will happen. And then you have to be prepared to carry it out kids are always testing and they want to know if you're really solid. If you buckle at that point and give in and say, well, I really didn't mean what I said, but if you do it again, I will. They'll push you just that much harder. Don't make threats quickly. Don't make foolish threats. But once you make a threat, be prepared to carry it out. And that may mean... no. Let me just give you one example from my own growing up years. My father said, you may only date Christian Reformed girls. I was Christian Reformed. The cutest girl within 15 miles belonged to the Reformed Church of America. (laughs) (laughs) So I dated her on the slide for a couple of months. And one day my dad said, is it true that you were going with so-and-so? Yes. I knew by this time in life it was good not to lie to Dad.
1: <laughs>
0: and he said, all right, I will give you one week to break it off or no more car. Ooh. That was the toughest thing I ever did in my life. And I didn't break it off because I liked her too much. And my wheels were taken away. father said, no more car. That's it. Uh, now, <laughs> got to call the girl and say, I can't come tonight because I don't have car. Dad took it away. Uh, that kind of thing. My dad had the character to stand firm and say, absolutely not. You will not. And carry it out. That hurt. I was embarrassed in front of all my friends because they all knew what was... I was embarrassed in front of all her friends. My dad says, I don't care. You disobeyed me. Parents need to do that. Teachers need to do that. To draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we will not permit anything beyond that point. Don't do it quickly. Pray about it. Think about it seriously before you do it. But then stand firm and be ready to carry it out. But even then, it isn't easy. Pray a lot. For God's help. One question back there and
1: then Yes.
0: Along the you were just saying,
1: drawing the line in the pants, had those two boys not shown up that morning, what would you have done? How would you have implemented
0: it Well, if nobody had shown up, I would have had to conclude that probably it wasn't them. But I played a hunch, and the hunch turned out to be very accurate. And here, those two who live miles apart out in the countryside, both arrive at my house at the very same time in their separate cars and say, what, what do you want us to do? Well, at that point, I thank God that they showed up. Now, you know, they had convicted themselves by appearing on the scene. And even then, it took the police. I still had to go, because at that point, they said, oh, we aren't going to do it. We aren't going to wash it up. I said, well, you're obviously guilty. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Well, we're not going to do anything. Said, yes, you will. Because I will give you now one hour to get it cleaned up, or the police will be at your door, and they'll pick you up, and I'll file charges against you. These are kids from the church. And I, again, I was taking a risk. And within an hour, they hadn't done anything. So I called the police. I said, you go talk to them. This is what they did. This is what happened. And the police brought them over fairly soon, and they said, Mr. DeYoung, how would you like it washed? How soon would you like it washed? What kind of (laughs) wax would you like, sir? Uh, How much money does your wife need? Uh, It takes that. But then... No, it's, it still didn't help them become saints overnight. That was a long process of sanctification. So, yes, the Lord blessed. So, okay. You've been. Uh, one yeah, one quick one. Uh, on the children again. Because children
1: are so resistant, please God put that pattern in there your children so you can have a long life. So we can draw on that. <laughs> Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) Be sure you keep that commandment straight. Parents obey your children. Uh, Children obey your parents, and the Lord. And then,
1: oh yes, you bet.
0: And we have, you know, that commandment that we can use. That's God say, "This is what I demand for my children." And then I promise. I come with a promise. If you do, you'll have a long and blessed life. So, thank you very much. Good night. God bless you.